Starbites. My name is Brian. I'm joined here with Andy. I'm Doug. And I'm Ben. Uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about the Milky Way galaxy. Brian, where were you in the other episode? We miss you. I was here <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is a good question, Andy. I just I think we should establish it really quick that since we are all students, we tend to not have a lot of time to be doing so this kind very, of stuff. Very happy life. <laughs> yeah, very very happy life. Uh, yeah, so sometimes like if any of us have a lot of homework or just other kind of shenanigans going on, Brian um, will be sleeping. Yeah, one of us might have to be replaced by yeah. Gabby or someone else. Um, but yeah, I'm yeah, not, I'm, I'm back. I'm back. There are a lot of people um, in the astro um, department here in our university, so there would definitely be more people. In this podcast, not just Gabby, but I definitely other, want to bring the variety. Other to people, them. our friends. Yeah, it's a nice backup. Um, so, what, what what is today's topic? Yeah, the Milky Way galaxy. Ooh. Is it the candy bar? <laughs> oh, oh, so good. Uh, yeah, the, the Milky Way. Um, I feel like people they hear that word a lot, uh, that phrase, I suppose, but they don't really know the what Milky it is. Way. It does sound kind of epic. Right? Like, you hear that phrase as you're growing up, the Milky Way galaxy. But like, what is the Milky Way? Um, so the Milky Way, as most people know, at least a lot of people know, is the galaxy that we reside in. Uh, it's incredibly important for us because it is our home, and galaxies are, in a sense, few and far between. There's a lot of space in between them. Uh, for example, the closest large galaxy that's near us is Andromeda Galaxy. It's a... Two and a half million <laughs> light years away. In our first episode, we talked about how far away the Crab Nebula was. was that was 6,000 light years away. Yeah. We emphasized how far that is. Yeah. So two and a half million. That is, is really, really far. A lot of Crab Nebulas. It's a lot, a lot of Crab Nebulas. Of crab nebulas. Uh, I'm kind of curious. Like, What was everyone's like first um, encounter with the Milky Way? That <laughs> 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 was... As in, like, when was the first time we we saw it? Yeah. So, so okay. I, I think maybe we should talk about this before. Like, it makes it sound less weird. Yeah. The Milky Way, even though we live within it, you can actually see in the night sky. Yeah. Because we're we're in like the outer, well, not like the outer edge of it, but like two thirds of the way out from the center of it. So right. So we are roughly at eight kiloparsecs away from the sun center. But Andy, <laughs> what, is, what is a parsec? What is a parsec? That's a great question. I know light years So miles. a parsec so. is 3.2 light years. Oh, so, okay. right, right. Oh, so we're, so we're, we're, relatively, we're relatively close <laughs> to the galactic uh, center. Um, and because you're sort of close into the galaxy, you have this unique perspective in which you can see it. Um, but the actual history of what the galaxy was is actually it took a really, really long time for humans to realize that what is even a, a galaxy and that we live in a galaxy, and most importantly, that the universe contains a lot more galaxies than we imagined. I mean, it also just took a real long time to understand that the points of light in the sky were other stars. Right. So to go from that to realizing that these stars are all part of a connected thing, mm -hmm. and then, then to realize that there were other connected things of stars right. farther away, it's just, yeah. Back to our point about what it, like, seeing the Milky Way is, um, 
you know, seeing in the night sky, I guess the question. For what was you, your like? What was your be, first story? Like, what was the first time you saw it, and what was it like? Well, before I, before I answer that, I just want to ask, like, what what would you be looking for, right? I think it's important to describe milk what it looks like in the sky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it looks and, like someone spilled some milk all over the sky. Yeah, that's I mean, that's how it got its name. The ancient Greeks thought that someone had spilled some milk. Across the sky, some gods. In particular, Hera's breastfeeding Hercules accidentally spilled some milk <laughs> on the sky, and that's apparently how you got the Milky Way, according to ancient Greek. And the Greeks were good with astronomy, though. Yeah, they were yeah, good. They were, they were had some wild, wild theories. Yeah, but the Milky Way, when you look at it in the night sky, it's just going to be like a band of stars close together and then there's going to be a bulge which is just like a big concentration of a lot of stars and you can see some dust there also that's reflecting light and it's really cool it looks like a giant pancake with a, with a thing in the middle right. so I, I think it's also important to note that a lot of people know what a galaxy looks like say from the outside so they know that there are there are spiral arms and it looks like a disc but um, from the inside, I think it is a good point to talk about that it doesn't look like that. You have to, it looks like a band, and you have to be in a decently dark area if you want to see it pretty well, because a lot of the stars that make up the part of the Milky Way that we're looking at are not super, super bright. <clears throat> so a lot of the stars we see in the sky just normally are the brightest ones, and that's why we can right. see them. Right. Yeah, you won't see the Milky Way in New York City. <laughs> no, definitely not. You see like two stars out here. It's pretty great. It's kind of sad. Oh uh, yeah, but the first time I saw the Milky Way, actually, or at least realized what I was looking at was the Milky Way. Um, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, so like, kind of the same as New York. Um, not a lot of stars to see at night, but uh, I used to go camping a lot in like middle school and high school, and uh, I was camping. Let's see, I guess summer after eighth grade, um, and it, it was super dark. It was like a night nighttime hike, so we were like away from even like the camp lights and just looking up and being able to see just this, this band of extra light in the sky. Uh, and just thinking about like what I was looking at, um, were you with a date and you were like, Hey, look at that. No, that's the Milky Way. I was with my fellow Boy Scouts. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> but, no, um, but yeah, so just, just looking at it and thinking about like what I was looking at, it's, it's the center and, arms of our galaxy and to think like oh there's there's a super massive black hole like where i'm looking um it's it's a pretty interesting thought to really realize your your place in the galaxy yeah my story is a little bit similar um so my family when i was a kid um and all the way through before i went to college we would always go during summer to a beach um and it was like a six-hour drive to the beach and it was a lot of fun and um, when I was a kid, it was not very urbanized, this place that we went to. And so at night when we were in the beach and we were just having fun playing um, in the sea, we would look up and we would see the, the Milky Way. And my dad would tell me, like, that's the Milky Way. But I never understood what he was saying. And um, just after all of middle school and you learn, like, oh, we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way, I still didn't connect the dots. But then I really like remember this moment where I was in the beach and my dad was like, oh, that's the Milky Way. And it just clicked in my brain that that is the galaxy 
and that's where we live. Woo! And that's a bunch of stars, and that's awesome. And that's wow. so cool. And I remember I was just like, what? What? And my dad was like, I always tell you this every day. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, son. Uh, yeah, I think I'm probably the odd one out of this group, considering I really only saw the Milky Way clearly for the first time maybe earlier this year. <laughs> so for reference, I am a senior in college studying astrophysics, and I, knew, I only recently saw the Milky Way, but I had known about it obviously, before I saw it. So it was still pretty cool, but I think for me it was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I think it would look like. So it's still really awesome. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. But, uh, you know, know a little bit about it first. So first time I saw the Milky Way, I had to be like 13 years old. Um, My dad took me to the local observatory. Um, and it was dark, and obviously when we went out, we were looking through the, the telescope, and when we finally went out, I suddenly gazed up. I saw the galaxy, it was amazing, it was stunned, um, and I just realized, wow, I didn't even know that existed. And what, what actually stood out the most was actually after we left, and when I, we went back to the city, um, I could not see it anymore. And I think that's one of the most amazing, well, one of the saddest things about astronomy is that you could see it in really dark skies, but eventually when you go back to the city lights, uh, suddenly the glow disappears and sort of the magic ends. Right. Uh, yeah, I just want to touch up on that as well. Um, obviously, because we're all astrophysicists, or at least studying astrophysics, we're clearly going to be blown away by the side of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. uh, just inherently because we're studying it it's very cool for us but it is very very cool for people even who aren't studying astronomy i've gone observing with friends um just gone camping to go look at stars mostly uh and pointed out the milky way to them and every single person that has ever seen it whether they're studying astrophysics or poli sci or whatever um they they really just appreciate it to the ultimate level i uh, just it's just one of those remarkable things that you can see, regardless of who you are, where you're from. Just, yeah. It's it's a sight to be had. It's it's visually, I think, by far the most, like the most spectacular thing to ever see in the night sky, aside from the Northern Lights, um, yeah. which I think Ben has seen, right? I have seen those. Well, which, which was better, Ben? Which one's better, Ben? I have to say the Northern Lights on this one. Ooh, we got a Milky Way hater, and he had our. Hate the Milky Way. Hate is gonna hate. Me and the Milky Way are friends, but I will say the Northern Lights were a bit more impressive. Right. So that's, that's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we should just dive straight into the history and maybe um, just talk about a little bit about how did even people figure out that the Milky Way was a thing and uh, yeah, and that it wasn't and just that it was milk. just exactly it was just just not just milk. <laughs> Imagine you're just like looking through your telescope and you see like. Cups of milk everywhere. How do we get from milk to here? <laughs> How do we get that? <laughs> yeah, so we have the, you know, we started with the story of, you know, ancient Greeks where they thought that it was milk. And then <clears throat> eventually in the 16, uh, in 1610, Galileo, um, with his newly developed telescope, looks up at the sky. And in particular, he points into the Milky Way because Back in those days, there was no light pollution, so it was really easy for astronomers to see the Milky Way. Um, and the story is that he sort of looked up, and the first thing that he saw was a lot more stars than what his naked eye could see. 
So this was the first time an actual astronomer started to do some um, surveying of the sky on a much more deeper level because we start to realize that the telescopes were a lot more powerful than our eyes and we could see a lot more detail. So that happened. And then you get your boy, Immanuel Kant, philosopher, 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 but also astronomer. And so in 1755, he sort of suggested that the Milky Way of what we're seeing is an actually a gravitationally bound system where stars are sort of bound together. And so there was already this notion that the, that these stars in the sky were part of a collective right, whole. Right. And that this whole was the Milky Way. And there was this notion that um, basically the Milky Way was an equivalent to the universe. <laughs> It's just yeah. like you have the Milky Way and that's it. Right. Everything else is just... But, but they didn't know exactly what it was. So, you yeah. know, they, they knew that it, these, these stars were bounded by something. But whether, you know, the, the sun was the center of all these stars. So we were sitting at the center, not just the Earth, but our solar system was sitting at the, at the center of this. Nobody quite knew. But we did know that, and by we I mean the astronomers, knew that the stars were gravitationally bound. Um, so then, uh, in 1757, this is one of my favorite astronomy stories, by the way, um, Charles Mercier, um, <laughs> also known for the M objects that I think that are really, uh, popular amongst amateur astronomers. Um, so the story goes that he basically, um, in those days, it was cool to chase comments. I don't know, like, I guess the equivalent would be of like Instagram posts. <laughs> Maybe like, okay. like, I, like, I guess it would be something like that where you would become really cool if you would find comics, uh, comments. And um, so the story is that Monsieur had a, a really cool telescope. And so he was the first one that actually wanted to do a really accurate uh, map of the sky. But he was spe specifically looking for comets. And while he was doing that for several years, he was encountering a lot of these fuzzy little objects, which he thought of not comets. <laughs> so those were the M numbers. So M1 through M110, I believe. Um, so he cataloged all those fuzzy little objects. And he said to the other astronomers, do not look there. You would waste your time. <laughs> and the funny thing is that it turned out to be that most of these things were galaxies. And he was like, well, this is just a waste of time. They're not really that interesting. They used to think that there were these just nebulae that, or it was just like some glowing gas and nothing in particular. But that, that, that was because of the fact that he just didn't have a powerful enough telescope to resolve, you know, what the galaxy actually looked like. Um, now, I think it's also important to stop here and readjust our sense of scale. So like, like Andy was saying, Messier was looking for these comets, but found these smudges. So a little, a little bit bigger than, stars, a little bit bigger than points, and those are galaxies comparable to the size of our own Milky Way, sometimes bigger, sometimes a little bit smaller. So we just need to think if our Milky Way in size is, what, a thousand times the distance to the Crab Nebula? Mm -hmm. And then the nearest one is, you said, like a hundred? It's two and a two half, half million. million, so that's another it's a thousand times that distance. Right? Yeah, so if you think about it, the distance to all these objects is enormous, and then so that means they're going to be really small. So if you look up into the sky, 
and see points of light. Some of them are stars, that's true, but a lot of them are also just galaxies. Right. So that really puts it into perspective of how right. much is in the universe. Yeah. So sorry, quick digression, but yeah. I think it's really important yeah. to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think that I actually I shared that fact with somebody else. I remember, I think it was my father, and it was so hard for him to realize that not only all the things that you could see in the observable sky are stars, but within those things there you could you're actually looking out into the universe and especially when you're looking away from the Milky Way, you're literally piercing through the universe and that's where you can see most of the other galaxies. It turned out to be that in the in seventeen eighty five we had one of the most revolutionary astronomers of the time, William Herschel. My um, guy. Your guy, definitely my guy too. Um and he, he had really powerful telescopes. I mean, uh, from what I remember, he had a, a 20-foot focal length telescope, a 12-inch aperture. And he built. And he built, him and Caroline, his sister, um, they built that, those telescopes, which were extremely powerful. So, you know, suddenly you have this, this enormous telescope that can resolve much more than what um, just a few years ago what astronomers could see. So... So he was the first one to actually start to observe these other galaxies. But what Herschel did in particular about the Milky Way um, was that he was the first one to start actually making uh, maps of the positions of the stars. So he, wa he wanted to make a map of the Milky Way galaxy. There's this beautiful diagram of sort of the shape of the Milky Way that does not look anything like it. <laughs> but it was a good try, I think. Yeah, I think it's just cool to put into perspective that back then, um, and it was Herschel and his sister doing this. Yeah. Caroline was the one that was doing most of the drawing. Mm -hmm. And that to me is incredible because back then you didn't have computers. You didn't have that sort of stuff. So to do a, a stellar survey, you had to literally go there and draw it out mm -hmm. on paper and just try to be as precise as you could. Old school. And that's insane to me. To anyone that hated trigonometry in high school, you yeah. would have hated this job. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Having to map out the stars' angles and distances. Just I can't imagine going through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Herschel, so he provided the first map. And so now we're starting to begin to understand a physical picture of what the Milky Way galaxy would look like. And so uh, in the 1920s, actually, this was a really interesting story. Uh, Harlow Shapley? Shapley. Shapley. Yeah, Shapley and Herbert Curtis. Um, there was this, uh, this, this thing called the Great Debate. And what they were basically trying to figure out was that are these galaxies that um, Messier and um, Hubble, uh, sorry, not Hubble, <laughs> that Herschel were observing inside the Milky Way, or were these external? Um, so what they sort of decided, what, what, well, you know, um, Herbert uh, Curtis, he actually discovered that these objects, these galaxies that we were observing were way too far to even be considered part of the Milky Way galaxy. I believe that they did that using um, Seafeeds, yeah. Variable stars, so yeah. for... Those people that don't know what they are, seafood variable stars are stars that vary in their luminosity, and the period of the variation can tell you a lot about the distance yeah. that star is to you. So, um, if you look at these stars, you can—they're a good way to measure distances from objects. And 
I think we talked about this in the first episode where basically one of the most important things in astronomy is figuring out distances. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, and they figured out that these objects were farther away than what we at that time thought the Milky Way should be in size. And I just want everybody to just realize that this is 1920, not a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Very soon. This is really recent like, history. So recent. And the most recent development like that we mentioned before then was 1782. So it was a big gap in just our understanding of how everything works. So people, people were still had no idea about the galaxy yeah. um, back then. Everything was still very manual. Um, and it, it baffled astronomers for a really long time of what, what are galaxies and how can we solve that issue of we're seeing other galaxies. We don't know exactly how to get the distances. So we can't really tell if they're inside or outside. Um, and then one of the greatest American astronomers, um, Edwin Hubble, I'm sure everyone has heard of him, um, was the first one that solidified that fact that um, galaxies are not, other galaxies are not inside the Milky Way. So the Milky Way is its own entity. It's its own island of stars. And exactly, he measured the distances using the sea feeds. And a little bit after that, he came out with his... Um, famous uh, Hubble discovery uh, that the universe was expanding. It was the famous Hubble constant, and he was able to measure the age of the universe because what he discovered basically was that um, he was able to measure the velocities of galaxies. And the further away he looked, the further away the galaxies were, the faster they were moving. And that actually turns out to be that it's a straight line. Y equals MX plus B, people. <laughs> Simple as that. Simple as that. And he just discovered the age of the universe. Just like that. Yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> Not a problem. That was played. Yeah. Well played. Uh, but yeah, if we're, if we're talking especially about how recent a lot of these discoveries are, Doug mentioned, what was it, 1920, that uh, some of these discoveries were made. I mentioned that there's a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. And we didn't even know that till the late 90s. Within the last 20 years is when we made that discovery. And it, I would say it's a like pretty well-known fact at this point. But basically how that happened is uh, there was another astronomer. Her name was Andrea Ghez. And this idea was proposed that because there is so much mass at the center of our galaxy and we we're able to see like this, this insane amount of light um, we didn't know if it was just a lot of stars, or maybe there was just a really large black hole. So over a few years, she mapped out the the velocities and orbits of certain stars that were really near the galactic center, and found that the only way for them to have velocities, orbital velocities as fast as they had, was for them to be orbiting around a supermassive black hole. And that black hole is something along the lines of 10 to the 6 times the mass of our sun. So it's a million times the mass of our sun. These new discoveries, they, they all happen within the last century, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah, and also not just that, but it's cool to see just how interconnected everything is. Like um, Andy mentioned how Hubble discovered that these objects were outside of our galaxy, and at the same time laid out this, this discovery for the age of the universe, and then when we came up with this theory about black holes, you suddenly have this way of figuring out how the galaxy works and what's in the center of our galaxy. 
So, you know, it's just a bunch of mixing of things that, that you use to figure out how the universe works, and it's very cool. Right. I mean, I think that um, as somebody that studies the Milky Way, so uh, my research is focused on the Milky Way and how it's formed, I think that one of the most relevant questions I get is how is that connected to the big picture? So, like, why do we even care how the Milky Way came to be or how did galaxies come to be? And, and it turns out to be that the question, the answer is a lot more complicated because everything is, as exactly, Doug, as you said, everything is connected. So we have this, this really interesting phenomena of dark matter that comes into play. We can understand a lot of things about how, about the Big Bang and how the first galaxies um, describe the profile of the Big Bang and the distribution of dark matter. So we're talking about really, really big questions um, that are connected to how galaxies form. So how do they form, Andy? <laughs> so how do they form? That's a great question. Um, actually, Doug and, uh, Doug, Doug's research is sort of related to my research. Um, Not really. Well... Right. So the idea is that um, there's this. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> well, yeah. Let me let me explain. Let me explain. So you basically have this this model called the lambda dark cold. It's called the lambda cold dark matter paradigm. What it but one of the things that it says it basically describes how galaxies form. And so there's this idea um, of a hierarchical model of how galaxies are formed. So you basically start from one host galaxy, and the way it forms is by um, smaller merging galaxies, and what we call them as dwarf satellite galaxies, kind of fall in and makes a whole bunch of mess. Um, we call it galactic cannibalism because the main galaxy, <laughs> the main galaxy, like, literally eats the smaller ones, and that's how you sort of get... Um, you know, current galaxies. So that that's what it basically says. And so my research actually focuses on and tries to prove that idea of that smaller dwarf satellite galaxies that go around the Milky Way. And we actually know that this happens. So you, I mean, you study one of those dwarf satellite galaxies. Yeah, I did. I my research over the summer was about the small and large Magellanic Magellanic mm -hmm. clouds. We talked about how in astronomy it's important to measure distances. I was just trying to figure out the distance right. to, the, to them. It's right. very but, basic work. But, it's a, but it's a very important concept, right? Um, but these, these smaller dwarf satellite galaxies, well, we know that they exist. Um, yeah. So that's sort of the evidence. And then my, my, fo my research sort of focuses on the galactic disk. And so we could sort of run back the time in uh, computer simulations, and we could look back at time and we could say, well, given these conditions that we see today, what was the history of the Milky Way? Right, and we didn't mention this, but the Milky Way um, is a spiral galaxy, which is a specific type of galaxy that has spiral arms, right. which are basically just these arms that are going just out. Waves. And they're kind of following like this rotation thing mm -hmm. that's going on. God, those spiral arms. <laughs> mess. They make so much of a mess in the galaxy. And we are in one of them. And Andy, your research was kind of related to why the Milky Way has spiral arms. Right. So one of the ideas is that, um, well, it's it's not completely right, but astronomers think, and especially people that study the Milky Way, were called uh, 
galactic archaeologists. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's a, a fancy term. Uh, that's such a dumb name. Galactic archaeology. <laughs> LOL. Um, what they basically say is that um, the spiral arms... Well, well, they think that galaxies by themselves can actually induce spiral arms, and that's because um, the way they move is a, it's it's really a really complicated thing. Um, it, it basically, matter can sort of wrap together, and what can eventually create these spiral arms. But what we we're finding is that basically, when these dwarf satellite galaxies sort of fall into our galaxy, and even more recently in the history of the galaxy, it can sort of induce these spiral arms. And when these spiral arms are actually induced, it actually creates ripples in the disk of the galaxy. And as a result, it literally kicks out stars into the outskirts of the galaxy. Ben just looked at me and was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah wild. It, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, it's really wild. You know, when you when we use these sort of modern surveys um, of, you know, we have these advanced telescopes that can actually scan the entire sky. When we look sort of away from the galaxy, you could see these regions, these really dense regions of stars um, that sort of would not technically belong there. Um, so the question is, who put them there? Now, Andy, you have to tell me, how <laughs> do you know that these stars came from the Milky Way? How come they didn't form there or came from somewhere else? How do you, how do you know? I asked them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well... One of the really interesting mechanisms that we could do and um, sort of to narrow it down, um, and there's several techniques to do that, but the, the best technique out there is to do high-resolution spectroscopy. So that's basically studying the chemistry of stars. And what you will notice is that if you, for example, look at the chemistry of stars that are inside the disk of a galaxy, so we're talking about really young, metal-rich stars, and by metal-rich, I mean that they have more elements other than hydrogen yeah, and helium. In yeah. the first episode. Um, so you look at their chemistry and you get this a certain number, a certain metallicity index. But when you look at these halo stars, right, when you look at the higher latitude stars and you look at, again at the chemistry, you would expect that if they were part of, you know, the outskirts of the galaxy, that they would be less. They would have less chemicals because maybe the star formation there where the um, the molecular clouds where stars are born are not that far out, right? We don't see matter, we don't see that much matter in the outskirts of the galaxy. We sort of see it primarily inside the disk. So when you look at their chemistry, you actually see that they look exactly like the disk stars. Ooh. Which is very, very <laughs> It all comes together now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess the question that I have about all of this, um, so we're talking about why the galaxy has the shape that it has, and we're talking about um, its spiral arms. But also, I guess an interesting point um, is we mentioned that the galaxy, when you look at it at John, looks like a pancake with a bulge in the middle. Pancake galaxy. And sure. it's really interesting to just notice that most things in the universe tend to be plane. So you have the solar system, and if you look at the orbits in the solar system, mm -hmm. they're all in one plane. Mm -hmm. And our galaxy is very, you know... Pancake-like. Yeah. So why that is, Andy? I hop. <laughs> um, well, why is that? So the problem is that basically we have spiral galaxies, right? We also have what other kinds of galaxies? We have elliptical galaxies. What else do we have? We have galaxies called... Irregular galaxies. Irregular. Good. And why are they called irregular? 
Because they're not spiral on Exactly. Them. So they sort of look like, not like a pancake. And so this is a very interesting thing. Um, so why are they flat? Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I think that this has to do with the fact of the angular momentum. Right. Um, it's sort of a radial force, and it sort of starts to compress things. The question is, why do other galaxies look differently, right? And if you and just to break the news to you, galaxies are not flat. They don't. Or they're not perfectly flat. They actually have a lot more than what they look like in the observational space. And, and yeah, that would be called the halo, right? The halo, right? Exactly. That's the outskirts of the galaxy. One thing I want to ask about is is the dark matter halo that Ooh. you so often hear about. So if you DMH. Again, if you can just answer kind of like why that dark matter halo is important. Well, dark matter is a really complicated thing. Um, the story goes, in 1970, um, you have the famous astronomer Vera Rubin um, and Ken Forbes. So what they basically are able to do is to measure the velocities of how fast our galaxy is moving um, radially, right? So we're looking at their radial profiles. Um so they, what they found was something extremely fascinating. Um, so according to Newtonian uh, dynamics, right, the, the points, the particles, the stars that are farther away from the galactic center would, in theory, have to, uh, you know, go slower, right? Yeah. Because they're traveling much more farther distance. So what Vera Rubin found in her team was basically that that's not happening. That's not the case. And that is that is so counterintuitive, right? Because that's basically one of the first times, well, actually, uh, that happened many times where, you know, our basic understanding of uh, Newtonian uh, dynamics uh, fails. Whether, so they, you know, they sort of thought like, wow, we got the calculations wrong. We have no idea what's going on. And what, so what they found was basically that the, the velocity of the galaxy actually doesn't drop as the further you go away. Instead, it sort of flattens out and uh, it, it produces this really famous, what we call, rotation curve of galaxies. And the only way to sort of explain this is to argue that there is mass. There's a lot more mass out um, further out from the center, which we clearly can't see. And then was born dark matter. Yeah, I mean, it was a long process. There were a lot of guesses, but we'll yeah. talk about that more in a dark matter yeah, episode. We'll definitely have uh, go into more history of that. But eventually we came to understand that it's likely dark matter uh, still being worked on, but that's the leading theory. By, it's a pretty accepted theory. Yeah, we'll definitely have a lot, uh, an episode just dedicated to dark matter and dark energy um, because there's a lot to talk about, um, and, and, it, and it goes into great detail. So that pretty much concludes uh, the history of how we've come to understand so much, our own galaxy. From Hera's breastfeeding <laughs> to Galileo peeking at the sky and dark matter. Dark matter. Yeah, just wild about it. at this point. Um, but yeah, since we're pretty much close, uh, while we were talking, actually, after Andy first mentioned Galileo's discoveries and uh, his the stuff that he said about it, I actually have a book on like Galileo's letters uh, sitting on my bookshelf. You found it? Yeah. We, well, not the exact quote, but one that I found was interesting about the Milky Way, actually. Um, Is it a poem? It's not a poem. I wish it was. But this was Galileo writing to um, someone else about what he was seeing when he first looked at the Milky Way, and it reads, I have observed the nature and material of the Milky Way. 
With the aid of the telescope, this has been scrutinized so directly and with such ocular certainty that all the disputes which have vexed philosophers through so many ages have been resolved, and we are at last freed from wordy debates about it. The galaxy is, in fact, nothing but a congeries of innumerable stars grouped together in clusters. Upon whatever part of it the telescope is directed, a vast crowd of stars is immediately presented to view. Many of them are rather large and quite bright, while the number of smaller ones is quite beyond calculation. So I think that really goes to show, uh, to the extent um, of our understanding of what the Milky Way was and, and right. how widely it was debated before Galileo started using started using a telescope. Uh, before that, people just had really no clue. They they just had these weird theories. They thought it was just like just like a milk. Like milk, yeah. They didn't realize it was just a, a bunch milk. of yeah. They didn't realize it was just a bunch of stars, um, and so even then, like Galileo's presenting this idea, it's that it's just a ton of stars that he's seeing, um, and it's in as he says, innumerable amount. So it was truly one of the greatest discoveries in astronomy was realizing that what we were looking at was our galaxy. Right. Um, but I think that's a good place to close it out. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that's a, that's a good place to close it out. We'll be talking more about uh, dark matter, actually, uh, next week. Um, we think it's a... Dark matter! We think it's a good... <laughs> a good segue, since... Since dark matter has played such an important role in understanding how galaxies work in the last 40 years yeah. or so. Well, and I, and I think it's tied back to the idea of galaxies. And um, we'll, we'll be discussing in that episode how sort of dark matter sort of drives the mechanism in galaxies and how galaxies could be the probes to discovering dark matter. Also, it's fun because we don't know anything about yeah, dark it's matter. It's literally called dark because so, it's a placeholder at this point. So our next podcast is going to be speculation. All right. Well, for that, thank you for listening. I'm Brian. I'm Ben. I'm Doug. And I'm Andy. We'll see you guys in the next episode.